Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 358th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Veronica Karras. Veronica is a senior financial advisor at Cap Trust and works for the RIA's Lake Success New York office, where she oversees nearly $360 million in assets under management for almost 200 client households. What's unique about Veronica, though, is the unique three-question approach she uses to generate referrals not only from clients, but also from centers of influence as well, and even uses it to get referrals from prospects she's not working with yet, all without being too pushy or salesy. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Veronica developed her three referral questions, which first ask clients and others to reflect on what else she could be doing for them that would be valuable, then what are the services she and her firm provides that are already the most valuable, and then whether there's anyone in their lives that could use help with those same services that they just said are so valuable, and uh, please facilitate an introduction to those individuals in need. How Veronica built this three-question approach because she didn't have a natural network of friends and family to give her referrals and had to figure out how to comfortably ask the existing clients of one of her mentors. And the way that Veronica follows up with the introduction she receives to actually turn them into new business opportunities. We also talk about how amidst onboarding 52 new clients in a single year due to the success of her three-question approach, Veronica had to develop a blueprint that all new clients would go through in the first year with the firm to leverage a more modular approach to planning and stretch out the planning work for the client and her own team over the span of 12 months. How Veronica's firm structures associate advisors to work with multiple senior advisors at once to not only offer high-touch service to their client households, but give those associate advisors intentional opportunities to learn what they can by being in meetings with multiple different advisors of the firm. And how Veronica's firm structures its advisor compensation to both empower associate advisors to take over client relationships and still have an incentive to learn and build their own book of business as well. And be certain to listen to the end, where Veronica shares how she overcame her early career feelings that she was too young to serve as a lead advisor, how a commitment to talking about her work with at least five people every day for two years, from strangers at Target to fellow advisors, helped Veronica to overcome her fears and generate a rising flow of prospect leads and introductions to key referral partners, and how Veronica has maintained her focus on doing the right thing to navigate ethical dilemmas that have arisen over the course of her career, even when it meant leaving a job after less than a year to start over somewhere else. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Veronica Karras. Welcome, Veronica Karras, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'm I'm excited for today's episode and and to to get to talk a bit about referrals. Uh, you know, I, I look at the well, see, I look at the industry research. We now we now run some of the industry research around how advisors market and grow their business, and and the the number one overwhelming dominating um, channel that most advisors use for growth is client referrals. I think our our last data had 93 percent of advisors grow with referrals. And I'm assuming most of the other 7% are simply because they're so new, they don't have enough clients yet to refer them. 
or they've been doing it so long that they just literally don't want any more clients in their mouth. <laughs> Every, everybody yeah. in between, just we serve our clients well in these deep relationship businesses. And it feels sort of inevitable that some number of them are going to refer some friends, family, colleagues, someone else, and we get to grow that way. Yeah. But the challenge absolutely. I find is that most of us grow through referrals and most of us do not get as much referral growth as we would like. Like we get some, but not a ton. And it's really hard to figure out how to change that. Most advisors I know don't like asking for referrals. It can feel awkward or campy uh, or, or just too aggressive and salesy. But if you're just sort of heroically wonderful for your clients and never facilitate that conversation, that doesn't always really seem to go better either. And we kind of get stuck in limbo land where we're serving clients well. We have astronomically high retention rates. It seems like everybody should be really happy to refer. And I'm getting some referrals, but not a, not a lot. And I know you have just a very different approach to this. Uh, you would actually join us on the on our marketing summit in spring of 2023 to share some of this like technique and system you've built around as I guess, as I would frame it, asking for referrals, although notably, I don't think you ever actually use the word referral in the yep. conversation, which is probably part of the point that you're going to educate us on <laughs> in a moment here. I'm excited to start this discussion around like building practices through referrals and when you want to actually get more referrals, how you make that conversation happen. Yeah. So when it came to building my practice, I'm going to go a little bit back and we can go further back. But I came here with my family as a refugee immigrant in the early 90s. And you get into the business of financial advising at any point, And I had the pleasure of starting at an insurance company way back when, you know, they always go, what's your personal network like? Let's make yes, a chart. Let's make family, a little chart. hundred names on the list. Yes, the names. And I'm like, everybody I know came here with $40 and two suitcases and doesn't have a dollar to their, and doesn't have much to their name beyond that. And so I didn't have a personal network at all. I was fortunate in the group that I joined um, now at CapTrust and prior to CapTrust, we were called First Capital Equities. And so I was like, okay, how do I make this happen in a way that people won't dislike me? That was my big fear. And or think I'm like a kid, right? That was the other thing that's sort of in the back of my mind, which we can talk about. Um, I was pretty young when I started building a book of business. Not that I'm all so much older now, but you know, the how you look and where you are in stages of your life matters too. And so, you know, when I when I joined the practice and the partner I was with, Alan Kleinberg, fortunate enough to take me under his wing, he was like, You can ask my clients for referrals. It was, I wasn't good at it. Like I would just be like something awkward, which I have heard other advisors do. Like when they struggle to asking for referrals, it's like, hey, you know, I, th I think we do a pretty good job for you. Maybe there's someone that we, you know, that you might send our way. Yeah. Or my first initial line was something like, you know, I know you've been working with Alan for a really long time, but I'm really trying to to build my own client base. Like, is there anyone you know that might be a good fit, which is such a terrible way to ask for a friend. Right. Yeah. That, that's basically like, I mean, you're almost putting yourself in the position of, so I'm, you know, you've been Alan with Alan forever because he's a senior advisor and you're a senior client. I'm like a young new advisor. So like, do you know young new people who could? Yeah, yeah, me? it was it was bad. And so um, 
It was funny because I was listening to a podcast related to sales. I think it was a Tony Robbins podcast. And Tony Robbins had so, uh, early in his career talked about selling audio cassettes door to door. And he used to ask people at the end of every time he had a conversation with them, and don't quote me on this. So Tony, I'm sorry if I'm misquoting you if you ever hear this. But it was something along the lines of, is there anything that we're not like, you're not getting out of these audio cassettes that you were hoping to get out of it when I sold you these audio cassette tapes. And people would be like, oh, I wish I didn't have to rewind them so much or like whatever they would say. And then he would be like, is there anyone who's really struggling with records that needs audio cassettes? Something along those lines in their lives. And I don't know why, but in that moment, it sparked something in me because I was like, there's, if I just asked every client, you know, is there anything I'm not doing for you that I could be doing, which is a play on that question. It's not offensive. Like I actually liked that question and I started to just ask that question. So it was like at the end of every meeting, Alan and I would have together, I would just ask as like a temperature gauging question. Like, is there anything we're not doing for you that we could be doing that would be helpful or valuable? And all the feedback we got was overwhelmingly positive. It was like, oh my God, I'm so glad you asked. I wish, you know, you guys do so much on my personal stuff, but I wish you helped me with my business cash flow a little bit, which like never in a million years would I have thought that's what that client would want. Or someone would say like, I think it's really time I introduce you to my kids because they could really use your help. Or like it became like this great, way to sort of start a whole different conversation. So wait, wait, mm -hmm. let me pause and, and just ask that because I'm, I'm trying to visualize the context. Mm -hmm. So you're sitting associate advisor style with Alan as the senior advisor at this point. Like, is it the two of you going out to these meetings with to clients jointly? And this is yeah. your question at the end of the meeting? That's correct. It would be like an agenda item at the end of the meeting. We would just ask, is there anything we're not doing for you that we could be doing? And, and, and I would is ask that, that something question. literally like you would ask, Alan yeah. would ask? Like I'm just trying to envision the so dynamic in the meeting question. when you're yeah. jumping in with this question after Alan's been working with them for three, five, ten plus So years. this is where I was really fortunate. Alan, in the beginning, and because he's also a big talker, lots of love to Alan, would do a lot of the talking. But as we built our relationship and you know, I built relationships with his clients, I used to run a good portion of the meetings. So this would happen. It would kind of naturally flow at the end of the meeting. Like, so I would take them through, let's say their Monte Carlo at the very end of the meeting. And then I would wrap up with sort of conclusions. So we need to do X, Y, Z on your accounts. We need you to send us your wills. We need your latest tax returns, whatever it is. And then I would say, is there any, is, are there any questions? And then I would ask the question. Okay. I'm also struck by this. I feel like there's a subset of us that maybe would have some fear in asking that question. Is there anything we're not doing for you that we could be doing that that you would find valuable or helpful that that there's this fear of like oh gosh they're just going to like they're going to unload that they don't like what we're doing they're going to unload that they don't like me yeah um, like they're going to ask for things i can't do and then i have to say no i can't do that and now it's like worse because we brought it up <laughs> and i literally had to tell them no we, so i guess i guess i'm both wondering did you have that concern and did that actually crop up as a problem or or do we just imagine this fear and that's not how it goes 
So I definitely had that concern. And in full disclosure, I think Alan had that concern too, because he was like, you know, I've been working with these people for like 20 years and no one has asked them this question. What if there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't do for them? Like, what yeah, if they're like, unhappy this tell, whole tell time? Tell me all the ways no I failed you for the past 20 years. It's like a little bit awkward as a moment yeah. to set up. Yeah. And so he was like, well, you know what? Try it. And if it doesn't go well, then we won't do it anymore. Right. It's like, you know, be a, be a little bit bold and play with it. And so... So I tried it with, um, with actually one of our biggest clients and the response was so positive. The very first one, and I think this helped, but the response was so positive because the client was so grateful that we asked the question. There was nothing, by the way, that the client wanted us to do. It was like, no, you guys take care of everything. I trust you. I love you. It's so great. And I'm really glad that you're asking this question because it's like, if there was something, I don't think at any point during this meeting would be like, as you're going through my projections and my financial plan would be a good time for me to interject. So I appreciate you opening the door for this conversation. So that was sort of the very start. And then so I just started asking it. And there was, you know, most of the time, let's say the worst response I've ever gotten to that question is just a cold uh, sort of like clients who are not as warm and fuzzy or talkative, maybe just being like, no, it's fine. Like everything is fine. I'm good. There's nothing you could do for nothing else you could do for me. It's all good. And on the flip side, you know, sometimes people gush over you over how great it is. So it was a totally unwarranted fear. Like we, we talked about it. We thought about it. We worried about it. And it came to be like totally something we never had to think about twice. So do, do you get ever get just unreasonable, <laughs> unrealistic requests that you then have to tell them, I'm sure that would be helpful, but no, I really can't do that for you. Or does that just not really crop up people? If they ask, they still tend to ask for reasonable things or improvements. Yeah. So I think I've had a couple of people ask for things we don't do outright, like do not do. Like it would be helpful if you did my filed my taxes for me every year because my accountant sucks and he's not responsive and we have to pivot that conversation to say like let's just find you a new accountant like let's work together and find you a new account because we're so not yeah, I, can, I can still help i won't do the return but like i can yeah. still help yeah that's exactly right so most of you know no one's asked me to like come mow their lawn on a wednesday so and i i would kind of find a way to joke around that if that ever came up by the way but every single person, by the way, it's a great thing to know that they're unhappy with their accountant and that we can facilitate an introduction to someone new and, and help in that regard. Overwhelmingly, whether it's something we can literally do or cannot do or anything in between, it's been a great question to ask. It's actually of the three referral, of the three question asks and the referral questions, it's, my, it's by far my favorite question. And, and I'm struck you mentioned that um, one of the responses you get was literally like, hey, you do such great work for me. Could you help so-and-so as well? That like some yeah. people just literally started – like their response of how you could be more helpful was to help a friend or family <laughs> member with, with yeah. it. Now, the, the example you gave was help my kids, which I know for some of us, that's that's not exactly an ideal referral uh but like am i reading that right that like referrals basically started coming out of that question directly yes 
That's exactly right. That's exactly what happened. So before I even added those first two questions, we immediately saw an uptick in referrals. And and was that the goal? I mean, I know we've set this up. We've sort of set this conversation up around referrals. But was the idea I'm going to ask this question and people are going to respond with a referral? Or was this no, more no like idea. I'm just literally trying to serve my clients better? Like it wasn't a referral path originally. It was a I just want to figure out how we serve our clients better and deepen the relationship. So what I thought would happen initially was I would ask that question. So I would ask, is there anything we're not doing for you? And people who loved us and thought we were doing a great job would just use that moment to gush over what a great job we do for them. And then that would lead the door, lead to a warmer conversation for me directly asking for a referral. In other words, what I thought would happen would I would ask the question and someone would be like, oh my God, no, you helped me with my estate planning and my tax planning and my retirement projections. And you just do so much work for me. I'm grateful for all of it. And then, and then I could in turn be like, that's so great. Thank you so much. You know, you're a great client of ours. And like, if there's someone you know in your life um, that we could help too, we would love an introduction. Like I was just going to pivot on that. That's right, what I right, thought Just right there. Happen. Take them literally gushing over how much they love you. And then it's like, well, if you love us that much, is there anyone yeah. you love who would love us too? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Basically like basically like that. That's what I thought would happen. Okay. I did not anticipate people being like, oh my God, I was actually talking to my friend John on the golf course. And you know, what would be really helpful is if you could have a conversation with him because he's stressed about his defined benefit plan or whatever. That happened all the time. Okay. <laughs> and so- where and how did you start inserting this question? Like, was it targeted? You know, here's the clients we want to get some referrals from. Was it everyone? Was it like, we're just going to go through the whole client base once and see what happens? Did it become a like, no, we're just asking this every meeting repetitively? Because who knows what they're going to say this time? Like, how did how were you inserting this question in? So yes, we did it as part of the annual review process. So not every meeting, not every conversation, okay. not every time. But when we had a big full meeting, we would make sure we asked the question. Because I feel like at that point, we felt we were going comprehensively through everything in their financial life. And so if we did the comprehensive review of sort of here's your financial plan and everything we do, it's a good lead into like, hey, by the way, is there anything we're not doing? Is there anything we're not talking about? You know, Know, anything like that. So you start using this question. <laughs> it's going well. Mm -hmm. So what happened next? Like, where did it go from there? So the challenge, so I wanted to, so <laughs> referrals was my only for a period of time. Referrals from Alan's clients was my only chance at building a book of business for some time. And I wanted to increase the rate. So the same thing I said, where there were clients that were gushing over us, there were clients who were kind of just, they were dry about it, for lack of a better term. They would just be like, no, I'm happy here. That's it. And then it's sort of like, okay, what do you do with that? Because you can't, it's not, it doesn't lead to such a warm, yeah, you're happy here. Do you know anybody else that would be happy here? You know, it's not like a natural flow to the question. If someone's gushing over you, that's one thing. But we found like more or less, like probably about half the people we asked were like, no, there's nothing that comes to mind or no, everything is great. Like, but a pretty mild, what I would call a mild answer. 
let's say, if they didn't have a specific thing. And so then I thought, okay, what is something I could add to it that for the people who are the non-gushers type of the world, let's say, that they would have to be very concrete about what we do for them that makes them happy, right? So sort of like a, you tell us, like you're saying you're happy here or everything is fine. Well, I want to know what you appreciate. Right. I want to know what it is that is that makes it like warm, makes you happy, makes you stay. Alan and my other partner here, David, and David's had clients for like 42 years. What makes a client stay for 42 years, but also not ever refer anybody. Right. And so I was like really focused on the referral part. And so the second question, and it took it. It went through so many iterations, but I really wanted it to sound very similar to the first question is where I came to because I wanted it to flow naturally. Became like, thank you so much. We hear that you're happy with us. Like for someone that's a little bit drier, that's really, really great. What would you say are the top two or three things we do for you that are most helpful or valuable? Mm. You know, it's just a way. So just like drilling down a little further. Yeah, yeah, you're great. Okay, but like, how am I great? Yeah, exactly. Like, tell me specifically, because I wanted, you know, I was like a little bit on a mission. Like, I wanted to see if there was a chance we could get a referral from every client. Like, it was, it, I'm a little bit in that, like, I'll take on a challenge or if we, we can gamify something a little bit, make it a little bit more interesting, more fun. I'm all for that. And so I think it became, how do I structure these questions to get the warmest responses from people? people? How do I get to the point where someone who is not normally gushing over us starts gushing over us? So it's easy and natural to ask for a referral. Like I wanted that feeling where when I'm asking them for a referral, it didn't feel uncomfortable and there was no like ick factor behind it, which is actually hard. I feel like it's hard. Because you're literally just taking the time to ask them the questions that lets them express how much they like you and how happy they are, right? I mean, just they're, they are, they're setting themselves up or you're setting them up into the conversation, but right, like, let's talk for a while about how awesome our planning services are. (laughs) Now, by the way, about referrals, since you've just (laughs) spent a few minutes talking about how much you like us and these things we do for you, right? Just you've put them into a certain kind of a very positive mental state where they're, They're literally reminiscing about all the things they like about the firm and what they do. Can't can't really get a warmer opportunity than that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I feel like in our industry, you know, people talk about when a spouse dies, it's really hard to, the money doesn't really stay with the advisor or when parents die, it doesn't transfer to the next generation or all this stuff. We don't really have that problem here at all. Like 99% of the time we keep the assets through generations. Like we have families we work with five, six generations of, because again, like David has had this business for four, for 42 years. And other than the money following the inheritance trail in a lot of those cases, maybe they haven't naturally referred other people. Some people are great referrers. They just are right. naturally. You don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to ask the questions. They're just, they're the people or who I like to say, like, everybody has a town realtor in their life who like will tell you the talk of the town and what's going on and they're happy to buzz about it. But some people just don't have those personalities. And so I was really determined to like broadly increase our referral rate. And I feel like some people, when it's not their natural instinct to be that sort of town realtor personality, that you have to almost, you have to be willing to 
to pull it out of them or find a warm way to get to know the other people in their life. And I've seen, having started in insurance land, I've seen the icky side of that, right? Like the, you know, go on LinkedIn, find five people they're connected with and ask them about those people. Like I, like for me, I would hate if somebody did that to me, for instance. I know that's a strategy and I know that it works. I'm not taking away from that. It's just not, it's not not part of my personality to do that, to like, do background research on who someone might know to figure out if there's a referral there is not like within the Veronica scape of comfort, let's say. And so I wanted them to tell me who in their lives could benefit from whatever they found most helpful and valuable. And then it was just a matter of how do we practically connect with that person? That was it. So then I'm presuming then the next part of the conversation is, okay, so will you provide us a referral. So (laughs) how does that part of the ask work when it's time to get there? Yep. So the third question just kind of naturally came. So the person would say, you know, oh, it's been so helpful for you helping me to unravel my employer benefits and help me with my budgeting. I'm just coming up with something. And I would be like, great. That's so nice to hear. Thank you. And we're so happy to help you with those things. And is there anyone you know in your life that needs help unraveling their employer benefits and maybe some budgeting help? We would love an introduction. And I just use whatever language they used um, to, to, to ask and it became natural. So it wasn't like, could you, it, it wasn't like a, could you give me a referral? It was more like, we'd love to meet anyone you know in your life that needs help with those things. Because the reality is like, if you think about your own struggles or you think about stuff you go through, there's usually someone maybe that you run it by. Like if I didn't have a financial advisor, hypothetically, and I needed to figure out my employer benefits, I might ask some friends like who they know or who they use, or I might ask HR, or I might ask my colleagues about it as an example. And so I, we were, I was trying to tap into that. Like who else in your life might need help with those things you just said were valuable because I also want them to, I want the person I'm talking to, to think of those people that they maybe have had those conversations with. And so so share that with us once more, like just because I'm sure you've been intentional about like the words you use and, and, and how you craft it. So how do you actually do the, the ask? Yeah, when so it's time I, to say like referral yep. time? So I say, is there anyone you know in your life who needs help with, insert whatever they just said, we would love if you could facilitate an introduction. We would love if you could facilitate an introduction. That's it. So I'm noting, first of all, like, you're not asking for referral, it's introduction. Mm -hmm. So is there a a, a reason for not saying referral? Only because I think it's one thing to ask someone to introduce you to somebody else that doesn't necessarily mean they're encouraging that person to do business with you. But Mm. referral has a connotation to me, and it may not to clients, by the way, this is where like sometimes we get in our own way or in our own head, but you have to find the, the thing that sounds most natural to you. And to me, the word referral has a business connotation to it. Like they would only okay. be giving me that person's name or doing something to encourage that person yeah, to do like business. A with referral me. means you're going to get the person to do business with me. An introduction is just, just an introduction. That's, yeah, 
Exactly. And like, I, when you have good relationships with clients, I would hope they would introduce you for a variety of reasons to like almost anyone in their network potentially. Right. And so to me, it just seems like a, a little bit of a warmer way to say it. And that's really a personal pick. I'm sure, you know, if I, there are definitely clients where I was like, if I said that, I would love if there was anyone in your life who needed help with those things, if you could refer them to me or something along those lines, I'm sure it would also go fine. It's just the word introduction seems warmer. And it also gives them an action step. So I'm also noticing you don't necessarily put them on the spot because you wrap this with, we would love if you could intro- if you could facilitate introduction, right? As opposed to saying like, is there anyone in your life who needs help with estate planning and budgeting for their farm? And then you just stop talking and let it be silent and wait for them to like <laughs> name name some name. Like, come on, give me names. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it just, I'm struck. You're not leaving it to them that pointedly. You're kind of wrapping with, we would love if you could intro if you could facilitate an introduction. So they can move on here if they don't want to like hand over names and start this process. You just set them up to spend some time reminiscing on how great the service and value is. So like, why would you not be helping your friend who needs help with the thing that you just said we're really good at solving for you? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I don't, I guess that's uh, that's more of a me thing too. I don't. I know there is this push in the industry of like get names from people or, or you know walk away from a meeting with two or three names. Otherwise, you're not getting it. I, it's just not very me. Like to be very transparent, like it just doesn't. Like I would hate to be put on the spot like that by somebody else. And I consider myself like when I'm happy with somebody's service, like I refer everyone in my life to them if I'm happy with them, you know. And so thinking about how I would want someone to approach me if like somebody was sitting there and you could take some, some basic situation, like in a doctor's office, let's say a doctor was building their practice and they're like, can you give me two or three names of potential like patients, future patients of mine? That's such an awkward position to be in if you're the person on the receiving end. So I just, I want it to be warm. I want to wrap up every meeting with the client feeling, walking away, feeling like, okay, they, I get tremendous value out of working with these people or with Veronica. And on top of that, they want to help people in my life. That's the impression I want to leave. Not the impression of like, wow, Veronica does such a great job for me and she's building her business. And now it's my problem to help her. (laughs) If that makes sense. So when you set this up with, they're saying the top two or three, three things that you do for them that they find valuable. And then you turn it right around. Like, okay, you said you love estate planning and how we helped you plan through cash flow for your family farm. Uh, because like that was the big planning thing for them. Mm-hmm. So when you now set this up, like, is there, is there anyone you know in your life who needs help with like thing you just said? I, I, again, maybe this is overanalyzing because these are the fearful things we tell ourselves. I feel like I have this fear that they're going to say things that weren't actually the primary thing I'm trying to grow my business on. (laughs) And like, if I ask them for referrals around that, like that, those weren't necessarily quite the referrals I was looking to get, right? Like I wasn't, you know, I helped you with an estate planning thing for your family farm, but I wasn't really trying to make a family farm niche. But if I ask you like who you know in your (laughs) life that needs help with family farm estate planning, like next thing you know, I'm going to have a bunch of family farm estate planning clients set up 
problem? Like, am I so funny. making this up to be a bigger issue than it than it is? Because you know, we're not asking them for a referral of what we say we do. We're asking them for a referral of what they say they value. So I appreciate that they value it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the thing I wanted to do for everyone. <laughs> Yeah. So my answer to that hasn't actually come up for me. That's so interesting that you mentioned that. But what I would say is I just wouldn't ask for the referral. Like okay. the conversation works if you stop at question two. If they're like, oh my God, you really helped me with the cash flow planning for my farm. That was like tremendous. You're, and you could just be like, wow, that's great. Thank you so much. Like I, it was great working with you on that. And you don't have to then ask okay. for additional Fair farm enough. referrals. You know what I mean? Like that's a choice. And so like, I guess I would say the the thing that has come up is people will say things that I've helped their kids with, like clients where we work with children will say things we help their kids with. And so like, wow, you really helped my kid, you know, with his medical school debt. I'm certainly not making a niche out of people with debt. So I'm not going to then say like, is there anyone you know in your life with a lot of debt that needs my help? Like, that's not a question. Like, I wouldn't lead into it that way. I would only take it and run with it if it's a referral that if I want that business. Okay, fair, fair enough. So nominally, we're going into this with the goal and hope that we're going to be able to find referral opportunities from every client. But if the path of the conversation is that they're talking about helpful, valuable things that are just not not the direction I necessarily wanted to build referrals on, then we just won't follow up with the referral conversation. At, at worst, the, the ask. At worst, we just spent some time reminiscing about how great our relationship is. Like this isn't going to be bad because we didn't get to the referral question. We did just spend a bunch of time having the client remind themselves about how much they like us. Like that's also just good for retention in general. Yeah. That's exactly right. Although what I will tell you is most of the time, the big things you help people with are the things people will mention. Like that's been my experience. I had some real fear around like everyone is going to not think of anything, by the way. That was my fear. So walking into this, I was like, what if people say like they just can't think of anything that we've done for them that's most helpful or valuable? And it's sort of like a, a flopping question. That hasn't happened either, by the way. People will will, when they're asked such a direct question, come up with something, even if they hadn't thought about it before. Most of the things they come up with are something something along the lines of like, you help me with the whole picture and like, I just trust you and you're great. You know, at, at worst, someone will say something kind of mild like that. And so when you follow it here, you know, is there is there anyone you know in your life who needs help with the thing you said was valuable? We would love if you could facilitate an introduction. So what happens next? Like they say, yes, yeah, um, Bob, my neighbor also yeah. needs help with his estate plan because you guys helped me out. So how, how do you take them to the next step? What do they do if they say yes, but maybe they're still not really clear? Like, how do I facilitate an introduction? What are you supposed to do? What do you want me to do exactly, Veronica? Yeah. So my ask is always, would you send an email to both of us um, to make it easy to introduce us? That's the best way because I have their email address. If I have a moment, it's a client I really like, and they're really eager about the introduction, I'll say, do you have their phone number handy? Would it be okay if I called them? That has worked too. I always send a follow-up note after every meeting and client conversation I have. And so for me, I would include Bob on on the follow-up email. You know, you mentioned Bob might be someone who could benefit from our services. Again, if you could just possibly send an email to all of us, like to, to both of us, that would be tremendously helpful. Something easy like that. And then you're running with it from there. 
So at the point you you do the outreach, is there is there any follow up back to the original referrer? I mean, do you like do you send them notes on progress or thank you gifts if it works out or thank you gifts either way? Was there follow up that you do back to the referrer after they provide an introduction? So I don't really, um, usually unless like in the next conversation, I will usually say like, thank you for introducing me to Bob in that example. Like we've had a great connection, a great conversation and he's been wonderful. Okay. Something really big like that. I don't send gifts to clients who refer really. I have a few times for people who have referred like multiple people at the same time, which, you know, like, I feel like it's an above and beyond thing. Yeah, yeah, I'll send yeah. like a little bit of a sugar wish gift or something like that, but nothing like formal that I have. But, you know, I've had clients who refer like five or six people all in the same time after I asked the question. And, yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, like, thank you so much for your trust and faith in us and introducing us to so many people you care about in your life, you know, things like that. I, I will definitely send it thank you for. But yeah, I mean, no formal, no big formal process, I would say. And people love the follow-up. They'll ask sometimes, hey, I introduced you to Jane and Sharon, like how did that go or something like that. If they ask, I'll answer however it went. So yeah. So as you go down this road, is this still, I think you said initially with the first question, this was a like once every annual review cycle you would pull out the question around, is there anything we're not doing for you that we could be doing that you would find valuable? Now that you've got like multiple questions that you do in sequence, is this still an annual review thing? Is it less often than that because it gets repetitive? Is it fine because people have new answers every year? Like, How does it work on an ongoing basis? So for clients, it's probably once a year, maybe a little bit more frequently than that. I feel like we worked on some major projects, I might ask it. So like if we took, like I'm, I'm working with someone on an estate settlement, we did a review before their parent died. I will probably ask after the estate settlement is over because it was, it was a lot a lot of work for us and they're super appreciative along the way in that case. But the question has morphed a little bit and I now apply it as, as we talked about in the marketing summit. I now ask everyone the questions basically in every conversation, at least the first two questions for sure. I weave it into prospect discussions, COI discussions. Almost every time I talk to anyone, I will say, is there anything we didn't talk about today that you were hoping we would cover that would be helpful mm. or valuable to you? Right. Like I just changed the question slightly for the top for what's happening in the moment. And then I would say, you know, what are the top two or three things we talked about that were most helpful or valuable? And then I say, is there anyone else, you know, in your life that needs help with those things? And now I actually get more referrals from prospects, including prospects who never become clients than I do from clients. You get referrals from prospects. All right, wait. So what were they not really want to focus this further? I, so, I know, so. so you just adjust them slightly. So instead of like, is there anything we're not doing for you that we could be doing? It's, is there anything we didn't cover in the conversation today yep. that you were hoping we would cover that would have been helpful or valuable? And yep. then what are the two or three things we talked about in the conversation today that were most valuable for you? Yep. 
That's exactly right. And so I focus on that conversation today because a lot of times I've never previously spoken to that person. It works really, really well. By a little bit of background, you know, CapTrust is sort of this two-ton gorilla in the retirement plan advice space. We're largest fiduciary of retirement plans. And so we do a lot of participant advice meetings. And so I will talk to participants of retirement plans and I will help them with their retirement projections or their investment allocations and their retirement plans or answering questions about anything in their financial life, really. And so that is a way um, not because we, we show up to those meetings as retirement counselors, but they, everybody knows somebody, right? And so it's right. not like we provide a service. And then at the end of that conversation, I literally just say, you know, is there anything, is there anything we didn't talk about today that you were hoping we would cover that would have been super helpful or valuable? I want to make sure, you know, got everything you needed out of this. And then whatever they say, and then I say, okay, what are the top two or three things? And then is there anyone you know in your life or works in your company or anybody else that needs help with those two or three things you just said? It's the same questions. They're just a little bit different because it focuses on that question, that day, that conversation. It's not an ongoing relationship. Okay. And it's ultimately really the same question at the end, right? Just, is there anyone in your life that could use help with things you just said? We'd really appreciate if you could facilitate an introduction. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's the same thing. But the interesting thing about the prospect part that I found is sometimes people are so grateful, but they're not in a position to hire you for a variety of reasons. They don't want to hire you. They don't have the assets to hire you. You We talk to people across the spectrum, but that doesn't mean they don't know someone. And a lot of times when when they feel like you've provided them a lot of value, hopefully they do feel that way, if they feel that way, they're inclined to feel like they want to do something nice for you or nice something back or, you know, so it's an easy ask. Or for some prospects who, and this is really, really true, the people who have referred the most business are prospective clients that didn't end up hiring us. It's very interesting. But um, it's like a get out of jail free card. Like they can't quite pinpoint maybe why they're not ready to make a move at this time or they get cold feet or, you know, like we're in a sticky business, right? People don't like, don't move from advisors very often, which is a good thing. They're they're assuaging their guilt of not hiring you by answering your lovely referral question and now everything. Yeah, by sending people who might hire me, who might hire me. It's, It's amazing. Like human psychology is such an amazing thing, but it's so true. You know, somebody will, I've had people literally tell me, I would love to introduce you to like 10 other people in my life. I'm really just not like, I can't make a move yet, but you've done so much work for me. Like, is there anything I can do for you? Well, yeah, <laughs> that would be great. I'd love to meet 10 people in your life. Interesting. Okay. It's been, it's been really, it's been an interesting sort of phenomenon of like getting referrals from people who for whatever reason chose not to work with us. And they give the largest quantity of referrals, I would say. Quality is a different thing, but they definitely give the largest quantity of referrals. And and again, I guess the, rem- the reminder to all of it is, if the two to three thing, valuable things they articulate are not things you want to get referrals for, you can simply wrap the conversation there. Like you don't have to get to the, is there anyone in your life that could use help with those things? We'd really appreciate if you could facilitate an introduction. Yep, that's exactly right. And it, and it, it all the time, it, you know, people 
come from all walks of life when they talk to us, you know, and sometimes people also don't necessarily know, like they might refer you to someone and this happened somewhat recently where they think that person is extremely wealthy and definitely needs a financial advisor, but it turns out they're not wealthy at all and they need budgeting uh-huh. help, right? Like that happens too sometimes. And so sometimes you talk to people who are not good fits, but you want to, you know, I always say I help everyone. I treat every single person I meet as if they're already a client, um, regardless of how, you know, if I'm giving in the terms of if I'm giving them advice of any kind, I treat, you know, prospective clients as if they're already clients. And so, or anybody that I'm really speaking to. And so if there's someone that I'm helping with like a debt management plan, and that's certainly not a niche I'm going to, you know, cultivate as an example, I would just, you know, be, I would just thank them for expressing their gratitude in the things I help them with. And that's it. So, so now help us understand what, your advisory practice looks like overall. I mean, you said you you sit within Cap Trust, which is a very large national firm that has lots of stuff. Yeah. But for for your practice or client base, however however you frame it, like what what is your advisory practice look like at this point? Yep. So I'm part of what we the Lake Success Office, which is on Long Island in New York. Um, we're about we're seven senior advisors, five junior advisors or what we call, you know, financial advisor relationship managers. Um, The acronym for that is FARM, by the way, if if you're keeping track. Uh, We need a better one, but that's what it is in the moment. And then we have about uh, seven or, yeah, seven people that are operations, service, um, and admin folks all together. Um, And and one person that sits on our institute, on our investment team, but it works out of our office. And so I am one of the seven advisors. Um, I have about 204 client households that are mine uh, that I've you know, brought in and, and worked on since I started building business just about five years ago, really. Um, and I, it, the thing that I think makes us a little bit different than maybe other practices or other offices is all of our sort of junior advisor team works with all of the senior advisors. We're not directly paired off. And so of the 204 clients, like all five of the, the junior advisors work on some subsect of all of them. Okay. And, and the client always meets with the same two people, but that like I don't only work with one other person in other okay. words. Okay. So uh so what does this add up to in terms of I don't know, like assets or revenue, however you you yeah. measure? So it's a it's uh as of yesterday, it's about three hundred and sixty million in assets under management. Okay. Um and about just over three million in revenue. Okay. And so that's a a lot of clients, just <laughs> sheer number of people to be meeting with. So what is what is service model and engagement look like in the in the firm for uh for a client base like this? Yeah, so I'm on the higher end. I'm actually working on sort of um, one of the challenges I'm working with, challenges I'm working on in an ongoing project is sort of, um, you know, with the other, with the junior advisors that have worked with my clients for a long time, I'm actually transitioning clients to them. Um, our goal is actually to cap each of our senior advisors at around 150 clients. Um, 
my business has just grown really, really fast. I guess that's an O, an O to the, uh, to the referral strategy we're talking about, but you know, it is that. Um, and so I'm working on sort of shifting that in terms of service, I, or the junior advisor that works on the client calls, we call each client at least once every six weeks, just for a 10 minute check-in conversation to say, Hey, how you doing? Um, for newer clients and I, we're going to talk about this on the planning summit. We have a 12-month sort of blueprint of and calendar of what we take our clients through. And then uh, really we do, you know, for the first two to three years, we do quarterly reviews. After the third year, most people want us to shift to semi-annual reviews. They don't want to hear from us that often. But we push all of our clients to meet with us at least twice a year. So I'm, I'm just trying to vision, like, total volume to 200 clients two plus meetings a year you've got like 400 plus meetings every year so you you put a little vacation and other other breaks in there you're still at a like 10 plus client meetings every week ongoing is that really what it adds up to yeah that's really what it adds up to so i have every Today, I have approximately two client meetings and two prospective client meetings on average. Not every day is the same. Sometimes it's more or less, but on average, that's what it is. So, so help me understand like what, what <laughs> you do versus what the associate advisor does just to manage that sheer amount of meetings and needing to be like mentally present for all the different things you have to be mentally present for when there's that many clients and that many prospects on a continuous basis. Yep. So for the most part, I have to say I'm really, really lucky. And part of this is is intentional. I also manage the junior advisors on our team. So all five of those um, fall under me. And I'm really focused on their growth and development. It's a big, a big chunk of what I devote my time to. So I'm really fortunate in that for the most part, Everything that gets done for a client, whatever we decide, because we do all of the meetings together, our junior advisors and planner team actually does. I kind of am the face that shows up to the meetings and, and talks to people and I get to deliver it and ask, answer questions and solve problems. And a lot of the times, like we're getting to a point with some of our um, advisors that have been here longer, they're really stepping up and owning the relationship. So while both of us would be on the call, they would actually be delivering the majority of, uh, of the information and the service in the call. And I just like chime in here and there. Um, and, you know, my big thing is just to show up prepared, having reviewed everything that was put together. So I'm not, you know, I, I I know exactly what's going on with the client at any given point, but most of the actual like planning analysis, day-to-day -day work, um, anything we have to actually do for our clients is done by our planning team. We just, I'm mostly like, I head up the relationship. I take ownership of any problems. So I'm a big, you know, take the blame, give the credit person. Um, and, and that's really what, what the difference is in that regard. I'm really, really lucky with the setup that we've created here. So on the one hand, I get it. Like you've got a layer of junior advisors that are in, are increasingly kind of supporting on the client relationships so you can handle 200 clients plus the growth, plus actually managing and helping to develop the 
the advisors themselves. I, I guess I am curious though why uh, why the like the not the the pooled approach and not a particular advisor or or two uh, that just works with you directly on all of your clients. Why the like the mix and match rotating approach? So it's a that's a little bit. Um due to how our practice is set up. So I mentioned David Schwartz who started the company 42 years ago. Um, and he has uh, someone who supported his business for a long time. Um, he's not, for example, in a growth phase of his business, but it working with him and his clients, um, even though that, you know, he's, that's sort of a sunsetting for lack of a lack of a better term situation allows you to learn how to keep as a, as a servicing advisor, how you keep clients for 42 years and how you cultivate those relationships to make sure when somebody passes the assets stay in the firm and all of that, you know, David's brilliant um, and has done such a great job building those relationships. At the same time, if you're just a a junior advisor who's working with that book of business, you miss out on working on business development, which is a really, really important skill as well from our perspective. And so because our business is interestingly sort of half and half, where half of the advisors are sort of sunsetting and half of the advisors are in growth phases of their business, we found for the growth and development, it's better for everybody to work with everybody, at least to some extent. It's not it, It's not quite exactly like they spend exactly 20% of their time, right, for right, instance, right. with each person. You know, somebody has a primary person they lean on and stuff like that, but it allows for better growth and development of the junior advisors. You know, if you think about somebody who would have been working on a sunsetting book of business for a long stretch for a long number of years, and then they would have to pivot to business development, having never seen somebody else do business development, it's a harder pivot. So we found actually just spreading it out works better for the growth and development, if that makes sense. Is that challenging for you as a senior advisor, though, because different different associates support you in different ways or show up in different ways in the meetings? Yes, I have to, uh, I keep a list on my desk of all my clients and who works with them because I, I wish I remembered all 200, but my well, memory yeah, is so not. so many people, you can't even remember who's, <laughs> who's, got, who's got what and which. It's just not who, but I actually do know for the majority of my clients who who they work with, it kind of like starts to stick after a while, as long as they, the person doesn't change, right? I kind of start to associate families with a specific junior advisor sort of in that regard, um, right. you know, in terms of my mind, it is challenging. Look, it's, it's one of the complaints I get from the senior advisor, because it's something I sort of implement to so the other senior advisors. It's something I sort of implemented in our, in our office for the reason that um, I, I kind of just mentioned is it's hard to, yeah to pivot sometimes if you haven't had business development experience. And on the flip side, if you only work with someone like me, for instance, there's a downside to that too. So like, because I'm a growing advisor whose business really just started five years ago, I haven't maintained relationships for 42 years. And right. that's a huge servicing aspect that you need to learn, like how to keep those clients. So there's, there's definitely advantages and disadvantages to both. It's definitely easier to have just one person, but also to be honest, I wouldn't want just one 
like one additional junior person to work with me because then they would be slammed with 200 clients. And that doesn't help anyone either, I think. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is also um, we, one of the things I'm very conscious of is definitely making sure each junior advisor is limited to 150 client households that they work on. So I wouldn't be able to have just one person anyway at this point. But in either case, I think it's to their advantage to work with the other advisors. And we all have different niches, different subsects. And when you're in the in the sort of para planner junior advisor phase, I think the more you can learn, the more you can pick up, the more you can kind of refine what you're interested in and what you're good at and have exposure and experience, sort of the faster you can run uh, when it comes to maybe wanting to develop your own business. And that has actually panned out, I have to say. So, you know, before I took on managing our uh, junior planner, junior advisor team, um, we probably had one out of five that were interested in building business um, and really pivoting towards that. Now we have four out of five of our junior advisors all pivoting towards business development. Um, and that's not a factor of any, any miraculous thing I'm doing. I think that they just have exposure to people who are doing it, which makes it seem like a much easier hurdle to climb on their own. And so how are these positions, if I can ask, structured from a compensation perspective? Are these folks all salaried when you've got this mixture where associate advisors support lots of different senior advisors? Like, how do you set up compensation so that this feels good for everyone? Yeah, so it's salary plus whenever they start bringing in their own business, it's a percentage of the revenue they bring in. It's not a percentage of revenue of any of the senior advisors at all. Cause David's revenue, for instance, right. looks dramatically different than mine. And we certainly right. don't want to create a situation where someone is being compensated just because they happen to work with clients who are older and therefore have accumulated more wealth, for instance. So yeah, salaried plus uh, percentage of revenue when they bring in their own business, because that's right. something we definitely want to encourage. But the big advantage of being in sales, if I may be so bold to use that word, is that you have unlimited earning potential. And we always want to create that even from the early days for advisors, like you can come here day one, if you want to start building business day one, you have unlimited earning potential. So as you do this work with clients. You said that you've got a a 12-month blueprint of what you take clients through. I think all of us collectively these days are trying to figure out what these client service calendars, ongoing client, uh, ongoing service models should look like. So I'm curious to hear more about what yours looks like and how you've evolved it since I feel like we're all collectively trying to figure out how do you blueprint out what we do for clients on an ongoing basis. All right. So basically, what ha I'll give you, a I'll paint the picture a little bit. So in 2021, I had a kind of a crazy business year. And I brought in 52 clients that year, which is not the norm. I just want to be clear, I'm not bringing in 52 client households as an individual advisor, like uh, in most years. In fact, my goal is something like two per month. But what happened just, is I, just two per month. <laughs> just two per month is my goal, yes. Um, you know, it's a goal, right? And so, but 52 clients in one year created chaos. It created chaos for me. It created chaos for, at that time, I had one, one um, 
planner that was uh, working with just me created chaos for him, even though I love him to pieces, he's wonderful. It created chaos for our operations team. Like we did not have the processes in place to bring on 52 clients. And most of them, like 12 of them came in in December. It was just like, it was chaotic at, hey, at best. <laughs> we've been meaning to figure this out this year, and it's it's almost the end of the year. So, Veronica, can we can we come on and get started before the end of the year? Sure. Yeah, and so I, for my sanity and for everybody else's sanity, I had to come up with a process because I was like, I don't want our growth to be limited by the lack of systems and processes. Like we did not, like we had an onboarding checklist and things like that. But in terms of like what the client experience looks like, what are we doing? 52 people come on in one year. What are we doing with all 52 people? How do we keep track? How are we servicing them. Like, what does that look like? We did not have that in place. And, you know, I brought on my very first client in like February of 2019. So it wasn't like 2021 was like, so I've been in business for so long, you know, we just didn't have them that there wasn't a growth rate that we had ever had. And so, um, you know, we, we did it. And and just to clarify, and all that growth was basically you finding this three question approach and just repeating it over and over again and it was driving that much activity yes yeah okay um and also i will admittedly say that at the time it was me also agreeing to take on clients that were not really amazing fits Uh but i you know i was in a growth phase of my business and i i was kind of just saying they anybody that wanted to hire me i was agreeing to hire them i didn't like I didn't figure out my niches at the time. Like, you know, I was in like the baby infant steps of business, you know, development. I was like, oh my God, all these people want to hire me. Of course I'm going to take them on, you know? And so I took on really small clients. I took on clients, relatively speaking, and I I took on clients like anyone basically that would hire me. So full disclosure on that too, just to be clear. Fair enough. Fair enough. These are things we occasionally do to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, uh, her own worst enemies. And I think it's important because I think a a lot of people go through that. It's like, how do you say no to a a potential client, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I I did. I struggled with that. So I didn't say no in that year. And everybody came on board. And I I was like, I I was kind of having a party, but also not, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better term, Um, and driving my team crazy. So the blueprint, and I was like, okay. We can't do the our prior process had really been do everything out of the gate for our clients. So as soon as they come on board, do their estate planning, do their taxes, handle their insurance, get IRRs, get on the phone with their accountant and their uh, in their TNE attorney. Um, let's talk about charitable stuff like do everything all up front. And so like the first two months of a client relationship, we would just be like full on deep diving into like everything going on with them, super intense, like, uh, and then it would be like, kind of smooth sailing after that, right? And so we had this whole like, just make it through the first two months of every one of these chaotic 52 clients, right? Which doesn't work when you bring on 12 in one month, just (laughs) to be clear. And we don't have in our office a service model where we do different things for different level of clients. We provide full holistic financial planning and do the same thing for every client, regardless of how much they have in assets, whether it's, you know, 500,000 or 50 million, we do the same thing. 
And so I was going crazy that year. So I was like, who says we have to do all of this work up front? Let's come up with what are we actually doing for all our clients? What are all of the components of the financial plan? Let's build it out and let's make it that each one of those categories spans one to two months. Why does it have to be all up front? And then we built that same process out in Microsoft Planner, which I would say I'm a a little bit of a power user of Microsoft Planner in terms of tech tools, because it worked great as a checklist, right? We create like a a board for every single person. If you've ever used Trello, uh, Microsoft Planner is somewhat similar. Basically, we like put everybody, we created a planner for everybody, and we would just use it as as a check through each month. And then it also helped us manage client expectations. They weren't expecting that we would do all of their financial planning up front. We spread it all out. It was very clear and really neat as a tool and as a calendar, and it brought sanity to the business. So can you help us understand more just what's, how does this work? What things are on the list? How did you spread them out? Is this literally multiple meetings? Do you now have like, uh, I mean, you said each category is every one to two months. Like, do you have six meetings with the client in the first year now because you're spreading all of this out? Like, how did yeah. this work? Yeah. And and the interesting thing is we found we were doing that anyway, like the first year, and I think other advisors will agree, the first year of a client coming on board as a client tends to be the most time intensive year where you're trying to do everything. And like I said, we call all of our clients, you know, once every six weeks anyway, uh, which if you do the math, six-ish weeks, let's say, if you do the math, that comes to about six to eight times a year that we call them. So it's not radically different from that anyway. But basically, you know, in the the very beginning, it's, it's your basic stuff. So we outline it as like the very beginning, you know, we're opening your accounts. We need all the paperwork that we need. We transfer outside assets. And then months one to two, we focus on crafting your investment strategy across all of your accounts, rebalancing them, creating allocations for retirement accounts that maybe we don't directly manage, but we we oversee everything. And then we make sure we spend time making sure we have all of your financial planning documents, you know, insurance policies, tax returns. We do a technology orientation in the first months or two. So that's all like months one and two. And we do get to know their CPA and attorney up front. And then months three to four, now that we've had the introduction to the attorney, we'll do everything related to estate planning. So we'll review their existing documents if they have them. If they don't have them, we work with a T&E attorney to implement any estate planning that needs to get done. And then months uh, five to six, we focus on insurance review and planning. So life insurance, disability, long-term care, uh, property and casualty insurance, health insurance, umbrella liability. We go through it soup to nuts over that two-month period, talk to any brokers they have, all of that. Months seven to eight, we focus on a tax strategy review and planning. You know, we review their prior years, usually about three years worth of tax returns, get on the phone with their accountant. Um, And by the way, timing of this matters. Like any of these can be arranged in any order. Like if I was bringing on a a client today, we would do tax planning first rather than estate planning. I was going to ask, like, is this this modular and flexible about the sequence? If if only because the client comes on board and says like, Hey, my hot button is is insurance. I know my PNC stuff's all all messed up, and my kid just turned sixteen, started to drive, and I'm freaked out about it. So, like, you can you can pull that forward if you if you need to. 
Yes, that's exactly right. So that's exactly right. We shuffle them around and that's where Microsoft Planner also helps because um, each of these sort of modular things is a bucket in Microsoft Planner and you just rearrange the buckets in whatever order it is for the client. So I don't have to remember actually what they said uh, was most important for them. We just kind of like run through it that way. Uh, so it's months seven to, to eight, uh, typically, and then months nine to 10. And I, what I always say is when I walk through this with a client, I always say, this assumes you come on in January. So take the order with a grain of salt. Um, months nine to 10 is what we call like holistic financial planning review, you know, college planning, marriage, divorce stuff. If they have a prenup, we want to look at it. Mortgages, um, we go through a document uh, retention and we do a, a love letter and an ethical will for a lot of our clients, Medicare planning, if that's appropriate. And then months 11 to 12, um, charitable giving planning, uh, revisiting, you know, all of the assets, income, expenses, and goals, and, you know, sort of putting a nice bow on uh, anything that hasn't been touched, like socials, optimizing social security benefits and things like that. Um, and we have our first annual review. And the other full disclosure thing is now that we've broken it out. Um, and we're not trying to do all the things at the same time. Um, a lot of times these things take longer than a month or two. Sometimes estate planning discussions can go, you know, four or five, six months. So sometimes this isn't a one year plan. It's an 18 month plan, for example. And clients and prospective clients all love it because it's just having a plan in place that matters for them. It's not like a, we're going to do everything. Um, it's a, we're going to take each step at a time and make sure we dot our I's and cross our T's and we're really, really uh, like strategic about it. And so do you actually, do you show that to clients or it's just what you're literally tracking to, to take them through up front? Is this part mm -hmm. of the initial prospecting or initial client process? Like we're going to be doing this over 12 months. Here's all the things. Yep. So we show it to clients. We show the clients first year to clients become a great marketing tool, which again was not what it was set out to do, but it has become that. We show it to um, almost every prospective client. Uh, we walk them through. It just demonstrates that we have a process, a very clear one to make sure we address you know, every area of your financial life. So I guess out of curiosity, is there a version of the, is there like a a template of this that you can share just for people who are listening and want to visualize it. I'm assuming if you, if you show it to prospects, there's like a generic sample client version. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The, none of them are customized to the client up front. Like we just show right. a, like a right. client's first year journey. And then really like what we're customizing for clients ends up kind of being done in Microsoft Planner on our end where we just move the order around of which way they want to focus on things and we're going to focus on things. And a lot of that depends on the time in the year when they come on board. And then some of it also depends on, you know, them and what's, what's the hot button, like, as you said, the hot button issue for them. Okay. So for those folks who are listening, this is Episode 358. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 358, we'll have a, a, a link out to the, I guess called the the first year blueprint of all the stuff that you go through in the first year and 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 how you actually show it to, to clients. Uh so Veronica, I guess I'm also wondering, does this like does this tie back to your CRM? Like just you know, most I of wish. us I find manage workflows and checklists in our CRM. You're describing something that sounds kind of checklisty but it's in microsoft planner so do these tie together do you have to live in two systems 
You know what? It's so funny you asked that question because it's a project we're working on to make them tie. We use Microsoft Dynamics as our CRM, okay. and it does not talk to Microsoft Planner. Oh, come on, Microsoft. <laughs> They're all yours. <laughs> make them talk to each other. I know, right? Or our, our IT team has not manage that integration, either one of those things, by the way, but right now it's in two separate systems. But what Microsoft Planner does allow you to do is it allows me to assign whoever the planner is to that client, by the way, to be to participate in that blueprint and assign tasks right out of Planner. And they go to that person's email. I can actually also send calendar invitations that goes right into Outlook, but it does not integrate with our CRM. So we have to re-enter the data at the moment. And yes, that is something that's a pain point. It's just when you're building out a rubric, if you've ever used Trello, uh, when you're building out something that's like you want to keep keep uh, keep a flow going, Microsoft Planner is just really good at it. And it makes sharing easy where Microsoft Dynamics is not good at it. Like I've tried in 20 different ways to rebuild this in Microsoft Dynamics and it's not friendly to that. So in terms of this year-long process, I feel like for a lot of us as advisors, there's this pressure with a new client to like just do the stuff, show the value, right? I mean, I think part of why First, your planning process is intensive as we're trying to show the the value of planning up front, and there's just a lot to cover, so there's a lot to get through, and you don't want the clients to to lose momentum and engagement. Like if they signed up and they're ready to go and get going, then often like we we want to keep their momentum and keep them going. So I guess I'm just wondering, in practice, what's it like as you've I guess like this is my words, but slowed down the first year process or like, hey, we're going to do this in 12 months, not six to eight <laughs> uh, <laughs> weeks, which is what a lot of advisory firms try to do to get through the first year planning process. What What's it been like? Like what's the client response been as you've slowed down this first year process and stretched it out as far as you have? Yep. So what I tell you is new clients have no idea how you used to do it, right? That's sort of like the easy thing. And if you set expectations up front, like we're going to take it one topic at a time, we want to make sure we're extremely thorough on each thing that we get into. And you frame it in a way that like this makes sense. And we know these things take as long. And, you know, by the way, I do tell clients that, you know, sometimes this becomes an 18 month process because certain things will take longer, like estate planning, or so now all of a sudden if you do it in 12 months you are doing it fast this isn't like yeah. this isn't slow this is fast <laughs> if you get through in a year yeah, exactly. And you know, some clients aren't as complex. Sometimes they're like, well, maybe I'm single and I just need a power of attorney. So estate planning is not going to take me three months to get through, right? So some things, you know, sometimes it is a little faster, but it just, it varies. Um, I think if you manage the client expectation that this is a reasonable thing and you have a plan and you have a blueprint for it, it also gives them peace of mind that you're keeping track. So we do, like I share my planner uh, with the client as we go through it and say, okay, here's like everything we've done. Here's what's still outstanding. You so know, literally within Microsoft planner, like you're, you're sharing the document thing to their mm -hmm. email address and they can see how it's progressing. Yep. That's exactly right. 
and, and you know, like with anything else, if you set the expectation that we're going to get through all of your planning in six to eight weeks, now they have that expectation. Right. If you set the expectation that it's 12 to 18 months and 12 months is actually pretty good, then that's their expectation. And clients who have urgency to get through stuff faster, to get through particular things faster, you just rearrange the modules accordingly as, yeah, as needed. Right. And look, if the, we come into somebody like we've all had that person, flexibility is key in this business too. You know, somebody's like, uh, I know I'm just talking to you, but actually I've put in for my retirement and my last day here is in a week. Mm-hmm. Well, there is urgency created by them having right. done that. And yeah, like now I have to like go figure out everything to do with their retirement much faster than I wish I did, but it's fine. Like we just, we work with that. If you used to do, if at some point you managed to bring on 52 clients and do everything for them in six to eight weeks, now trying to do half that number of clients in most of the time you have that 12 month runway, it gets much easier. So as you reflect back on this journey, what surprised you the most about building your advisory business and your book of clients? Um, so I struggled a lot, Michael, I have to be honest, you know, in the beginning, because when I started building business, I was 28 years old. And if you've ever done estate planning for clients, attorneys sometimes will draft language that's like, you know, full distribution to a kid at age 35. And we used to sit and and I used to be in meetings with, uh, with Alan and he used to tell kid, he used to tell clients, you know, 35 is way too young for your kid to be inheriting so much money and managing it. But here I am trying to be 28 years old, trying to build a book of business. So I had a lot of sort of uh, what I'll call garbage in my head around being too young to be successful. Um, And I didn't, I I was, I stumbled a lot. I fumbled a lot. I had great examples and great mentors and uh, running around with Alan for three and a half years and watching him build business was certainly really, really helpful and an amazing, you know, mentorship experience. And at the same time, Um, I had a lot of garbage in my head around people will never hire me and things like that. I've had lots of setbacks, uh, the same way I had, you know, really good business years. Like I had really bad business years. Um, and you know, I think what's been most surprising to me, and I guess this is more, most surprising to me about myself is my sort of relentlessness for lack of a better term like I just I knew when I set out to start building a book of business and I had been a paraplanner for so long um, at the time you know being in this industry for 15 years I supported other advisors for 10 of them and I knew that I had the technical skills I've been listening to kitses for as many years and uh, you know I I knew I had the technical skills and I knew all that but I had so much nonsense about being so young um, but I at the same time like not succeeding was not an option for me. Like, uh, you know, my first two years in business, (laughs) um, I had this goal that every single day of the calendar year, so 365 days, both years, I would find five people a day and tell them what I did and why they would hire me or why they should work with me. And, um, and sometimes it was, you know, I gave like pro bono library talks. Um, I did a, I did a lot of CFP board pro bono work and talked about me as just a way to like, just talk and get that experience. And sometimes I would drag my husband to target at 8 PM at night to find random people in the aisles and talk about what I did. 
because I was committed to finding five people a day and telling them what I did no matter what. Um, and I did it for two years. And by the way, in 22, because if you're keeping track, 2020 was the second year of that. And it got a hell of a ha- harder to find five people a day when the world shut down. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I did, you know, I, in 2020, I guested on like 72 different podcasts, totally like random things too. Like I, I went on and talked about the CARES Act and other things. And, um, you know, I... I gave lots of pro bono, like virtual classes for different nonprofits on financial planning. I found ways to tell five people what I did every single calendar day of 2019 and 2020. And I did it no matter what it took. And so I found this sort of like relentless determination within me that I didn't know I had. That was probably the most surprising. And and this <laughs> goal of tell five people a day what you what you did for the better part of two years just where did that come from made up entirely (laughs) which is like this is a line you drew for yourself and then wouldn't let yourself not follow through and cross the line yeah that's exactly right it was five people a day and you know at the time when i had joined now cap trust has about 1500 employees nationwide at the time we only had about 400 i think and so like inevitably four out of the five people or so three out of five sometimes would be people who worked at Captress. Like I was just calling some random advisor in like uh, Louisiana, like, Hey, I, I don't know what your practice is about, but you know, I'd love to introduce myself and tell you what I do. <laughs> and it and just... what was the goal for yourself to like, to literally practice the, the speech, the pitch or, or no, something else? To- just to talk to people, get to know people. Um, you know, like I said, CapTrust has a big institutional practice. So I wanted to get to know institutional advisors. I know they did something different than we do on the wealth side. I wanted to see if there was some way to build relationships that could be equally beneficial. You know, if they knew somebody that needed some advice. Back to my earlier point of everybody knows somebody. It was literally just to get connected. You know, like the funny thing is the like I met somebody in Target, which is I use it as an example, at 8 p.m. at night one time who introduced me to a local accountant. Like it was their niece or nephew who's a local CPA that I didn't know. Um, Then that became one of the five that I spoke to, you know, another day. And that accountant has become a tremendous referral partner. And it wasn't the person at Target, but it was that conversation that led to it. And so I, you know, back to my earlier point, like I don't have, I didn't have a personal network. I didn't know where to start with building business. So I was just on a mission to meet people and talk to people. And so I was going to ask like how you, what, what changed for you as you went through those two years? Like what was, what was different for you at the end after doing it than, than where you were at the beginning? First of all, I had some clients um, that was that was different. So you know, I, I I got I managed to get some clients, some relationships. I built up some pretty good relationships with some centers of influence during that two year period that I was introduced to. Um, you know, there was a there was just a lot in that regard that was tremendously beneficial. 
And then related to that, I think what what also changed was my mindset and understanding about why I was doing it. You know, in the first year or so, the the very beginning, I was like, I'm just gonna just go out there and tell five people a day what I do, what's the worst that can happen. And then as I was closing up on the five years, I became more strategic about asking for people I want to meet. So like if people were not, if people didn't, it were like, you know, great story, but there's nothing we could do together. I would actually ask them target or anywhere else, by the way, you know, is there someone, you know, in your life, like, do you love your CPA? Do you love, do you have a trust in a state's attorney you'd love? I'd love, like, do you have their phone number? I'd love to just get in touch with them. And so it became like over time, I, w- I became more and more specific about asking question about asking for what I was looking for. So what was the low point for you on this career journey? You're, you're 15 plus years in now. Um, low point. So in 2015, when the Obama administration was looking to pull, um, to push through the fiduciary rule, I got picked up by a large broker dealer out of a small RIA because they were hiring specifically CFPs out of RIAs. And I got placed with this advisor team that uh, was, wasn't was really looking to meet any fiduciary obligations. But of course, with large broker dealers, there's a metric for everything. So they came out with this KYC metric, know your client metric, that uh, you, know, you had to have a certain amount of information about every one of your clients in the system. And then if you met it by a certain date, if that advisor met it by a certain date, um, you would get, that advisor would get a bonus. And so my entire job, on that team became not focusing on delivering financial planning to those clients, but helping this guy get a bonus by whatever means necessary. And I, you know, I got into this business really early on because somebody took, you know, sort of financial advantage of my grandfather. And I really believe morals and ethics are always like top of everything that I do. And so, you know, the, (laughs) I had such a mismatch with this advisor team that I worked for, you know, the guy didn't know anything about his clients, didn't, you know, sold portfolios, but didn't, you know, if his client, like, if his clients had children, didn't know if they were married, like really basic in the RIA, what I would consider basic yeah. knowledge about clients, um, didn't know anything. And at some point when, you know, cause I was just calling people who didn't know me. It wasn't like a warm and fuzzy thing. He didn't like introduce me to his clients in a warm way. I was just supposed to call people and ask them all these personal questions about them. Um, so that and, you could fill out the KYC details. So and- I could basically complete their fight quote yeah. unquote financial plan in the system and enter the, that information. And, you know, the numbers weren't moving up fast enough for him because he had no KYC information on any of his clients. And so the metric was something like get to 70% by November 15th. And I had started there on like, I don't know, September 5th or 6th or something. And numbers weren't moving fast enough. And so he told me to make stuff up just to move the metrics up, which goes against every fiber of everything that I believe in. And I refused to do it. Um, Essentially, like had a really tense few months, he didn't get his bonus. Um, You know, I said, look, you want to make up stuff about your clients, you do it yourself. I'm not I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. 
Um, and I had left that position by the beginning of March. <laughs> so I survived a few months in that broker dealer role. Um, but I got really physically sick, um, you know, being, you know, uh, he, he wasn't very nice about it. He was constantly telling me like, uh, you know, you're worth, you're worthless. No one's ever going to work with you. You have to do whatever it takes. You need a different attitude. Like it was just a terrible, awful, like gut wrenching experience. And, you know, you're always told, you know, you got to survive at least a year somewhere. Otherwise it looks terrible on your resume. And so, you know, I started looking for jobs, but, you know, I had only been there for a few months. I knew I needed to go back to working for an RIA as quickly as I could. And that was, that was definitely by far my lowest point in my career. So what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you like 10, 15 years ago as you were starting your career? I would say what I know now is not to be so fearful about what the outcome is. I think relentlessness and determination will, will eventually lead to success. You know, when I started in life insurance land in 2008, which was a really fun time to be starting in this industry, I had no idea what my career would turn into. I had no idea what an RIA was or a CFP was or anything. I was graduating uh, from Baruch with a degree in market in international marketing management. <laughs> um, and I had no idea, like I knew I wanted to be in the financial planning space. I knew I didn't want to take advantage of people by selling them crappy annuities. <laughs> there are good annuities out there, but not, I didn't want to, didn't want to do that. And I guess like the thing I would say is like, it all falls in place sort of the way that it's meant to, as long as you follow your heart, do what, like follow your own moral compass on what is right and kind of don't let anybody sway that because there's a lot of that, unfortunately, in this industry. So any other advice you would give younger, newer advisors who are, are maybe getting started with their careers today? Yes. My biggest advice, and I give it here too, is if you hear a term dive in and research it and embrace it, like embrace sucking and not knowing things to the point where you want to become an expert in them. I think what always really helped me is like, I don't know, somebody would say something in a meeting or something, or I would hear a term like rolling grats. And then I would spend all evening. And if I didn't get it then all weekend, like finding everything I could about grats, rolling grats, what it means, who it's for. And I would just like, dive into it. Like never shy away from questions. Don't shy away from saying, I don't know, but I'll find out for you. Cause I think that's a big part of what we're hired for. And I think one of the things that really sets an, uh, a truly amazing advisor apart from other people is that ability to just figure things out. Like everything is figure outable and like, don't shy away from like embracing what you don't know and becoming really comfortable with it. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that always comes up is the the word success means very different things to different people. Sometimes different things to us as our, our careers and, and life evolves. So as someone who's built a, what anybody objectively call it, an incredibly successful practice and client base, you know, the business is going so well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? My ability to teach others to, or not, maybe not teach, my ability to guide, grow, and uplift others to do the same or better than me. 
my biggest success is if whoever I am working with, the the junior advisors that I work with, if they are more successful than I am, that I'm doing something right. Mm. So I can see why you're uh, excited to get to work on the development of the the five on the team <laughs> there in the like success office and perhaps yeah. more in the company over time. Yeah, for sure. It's a big passion of mine. And I think, uh, I think any meaningful success has to be what you can give back to others. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Veronica, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.